Hey, good to see you all. Though I can hardly see you because my glasses aren't working right. We got nailed by a snowstorm here in the Milwaukee area um, during the night. So we're not gathering for church. As you know, we gather. We have about 175, 200 people. Um, no masks, no social distancing, good Christian fellowship. But today we're not able to meet because of the snowstorm. So anyway, I decided to do my sermon anyhow um, from my room table. So I have uh, my coffee and uh, I also have my Defy Tyrants coaster that my coffee cup is sitting on. And the sermon I have to share with you this morning is an important one. I am going to take a break this morning from the book of Judges and preach to you about a lot of good history, Christian history regarding medical care matters, and then also get into some political stuff that's going on here in the state of Wisconsin that gives great um, opportunity to teach biblical thinking to you regarding um, this whole COVID thing and what's going on. Just to think as a Christian generally regarding money and regarding civil government. So our scripture passage this morning is Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 40. So I'm going to read there. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered together before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. May God bless the reading of his word. The title of my sermon is white coats and purse strings. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that your blessing would be upon this sermon, that you would help me to set forth that which you've given me to declare this Sunday. We thank you that it's able to go forth via this way. And Lord, I pray and ask that you bless the time of family worship in each of the homes that worshiped you this morning and prepared to listen to this sermon. May your blessing be upon all those who are listening and help me to set forth that which you've given me to declare and use it by the power of your Holy Spirit for good in the lives of all those. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's begin here. The reason I decided to preach this sermon is because I've talked with so many who are now fearful to go to the hospital. They're actually fearful to go to their own doctors, some of them, fearful of the medical community in general, fearful of these medical professionals, quote unquote, in general. 
The reason they're fearful is they see themselves being subjected to things they want no part of, like COVID tests, like isolation, like being subjected to quackery by those who are proffered as quote-unquote professionals and quote-unquote heroes. They see all this nonsense. It alarms them. They see doctors and healthcare workers not as people who care about them, but as agents of the state. Now, parents have already been fearful to take their kids to the hospital for years now because they've all heard the horror stories where health officials act like agents of the state and don't believe the story of the accident that happened and that type of thing. But now people in all sectors, the single, married without children, the elderly, now they're all fearing these health officials because they've been totally annexed by the state. I remember 10 years ago telling my children for the first time that these young doctors, is what I told them, and dentists, think they know better than you, whether as an individual or as a parent. They think they know they think they know better than you. You're going to do what they tell you to do. And if you don't do what they tell you to do, they're going to hold you suspect. And the truth of the matter is they may even narc on you to the state. I told my children flat out, they're being taught to think and behave like agents of the state. And that's what healthcare workers have become in this country. They fill out volumes of information about you every time you see them. Some have quit the industry just because of all the nonsense that has gone on with the government intrusion into our healthcare matters. The truth is we have gone from medical care being viewed as a ministry when Christianity prevails in the, in the, in the culture to being a function of the state. We've gone from doctors and healthcare workers looking at their patients as individuals who need their care to mere human resources whose care is dictated by the state. And this is wholly opposite of what it used to be, wholly opposite of what things were like when Christianity was the ethic and not status secularism. This morning, I want you to understand two things. One is the impetus for Christian involvement in medical care matters. And secondly, some of the history of Christian involvement in medical care matters. This is important because in our day, the statists and secularists are rewriting history to fit their statist anti-Christian narrative. For just one example, there is a push in academia and at the popular level too, to teach people that Muslims are the tolerant ones and the harbingers of all successful medical advances in the West. That is so untrue historically. Islam is not tolerant. Just read history and speak to those even up to our day who have lived under the Islamist boot in countless countries, and you'll know they're not the tolerant ones. They are also not the harbingers the Christ-haters make them out to be regarding medical matters. For example, the first hospital ever established was a 300-bed facility by Basil, who was the Bishop of Caesarea in 369 A.D., Christian hospitals grew apace, spreading throughout both East and the West. It was not until four centuries later that Arab Muslims began to build hospitals. 
four centuries after the Christians. In fact, the Muslim interest in medical matters came from Galen, who lived in the second century. He was a Roman, not a Muslim. His teachings on medicine became influential in the Islamic world after they were translated into Arabic by a Christian, by an Arabic Christian. A Christian is an Arab. Actually translated it, Galen's works, in the ninth century. So first I want you to understand the impetus for Christian involvement in medical care matters. The impetus for Christian involvement in medical care matters are found in the simple command to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Christianity brought a much-needed ethic to medical matters, one that rested upon love, compassion, and service, all great Christian virtues taught by our Lord. Love, compassion, and service. The Imago Dei provided the foundation for the Hebrew concept of human personhood, and certain practices common among ancient Near Eastern societies were forbidden by God's law, like child sacrifice, infanticide, abortion, euthanasia. That's right, the Imago Dei meant we do not finish people off who are ill like you would a wounded horse. In the New Testament, the doctrine of the Incarnation extended and deepened the implications of the Imago Dei, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1, 14. Early Christians believed that the motivation for charity should be God's self-giving love to us, which reflected his nature. 1 John 4, 8. And then let's go to our text. In Matthew 25, 36, Jesus said, when I was sick, you visited me. And Jesus said, the righteous respond by saying, quote, when did we see you sick and visit you? And Jesus answers, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. This is the impetus for Christian involvement in medical care matters. This is why Christianity influenced the world of medical care, because of the teachings of Christ himself regarding love for our neighbor. This is a foundation, presupposition, and ethic far different from what the statists and secularists have in our day regarding medical care. Now, let me give you a little Christian history on Christians in medical care matters. Christians are seen historically to be involved in matters of medical care from the very beginning of Christianity. The early church not only endorsed medicine, but championed care for the sick. In Christian theology, birthed a personal and corporate charity surpassing any previously known. Church leaders encouraged all Christians to visit the sick and help the poor, and each congregation also established an organized ministry of mercy. Presbyters and deacons added benevolent ministry to their roles and duties. They collected alms each Sunday distributed by deacons. Widows and deaconesses provided a ministry of mercy to women. Despite persecution in their small numbers, Christians maintained an extensive ministry to those in need such an extensive ministry that the pagans themselves wrote about the love of the Christians, about the mercy, the care to both their brethren and to strangers by the Christians. 
By the third century, the number of those receiving aid from the hands of the church had grown considerably, especially in large cities. Congregations created additional minor clerical orders, such as subdeacons and acolytes, to assist deacons in benevolence, as well as liturgy. Also in the third century, in the years 250 to 251, there was a massive plague in the Western Roman Empire. It spread from Ethiopia, across North Africa, then to Italy and the Western Empire. At one point in Rome, 5,000 people died in one day. Beyond offering supplications to the gods for relief, public officials did nothing to prevent the spread of the disease, treat the sick, or even bury the dead. This is not surprising since the pagans believed that nothing effective could be done in a time of plague other than appeasing the gods. And of course, now in our day, they try to appease their god of false science with a whole host of nonsensical acts, you know, masking being one of them. Put the mask on, walk 10 feet to your table. Now you can take it off. Like the virus magically doesn't affect you there. The curfews at 10 o'clock at night, midnight that some of the other geographical areas had. It's just in stupid insanity, all these little things that they've come up with. This plague from 250 to 251 caused the church to expand its program of benevolence. Albert Johnson, University of Washington historian of medicine, wrote this. He said, quote, during the 4th to 14th centuries, the Christian faith permeated all aspects of life in the West. The very conception of medicine, as well as its practice, was deeply touched by the doctrine and discipline of Christianity. This theological and ecclesiastical influence manifestly shaped the ethics of medicine, but it even indirectly affected its science, since as its missionaries evangelized the peoples of Western and Northern Europe, the church found itself in a constant battle against the use of magic and superstition in the work of healing. It championed rational medicine along with prayer to counter superstition, unquote. That was Albert Johnson, University of Washington, historian of medicine. Here's something another historian wrote, which I thought was a great summary. It's a little lengthy, and I hope you don't go to sleep on me. Try to listen to what I'm saying, and I'll try to inflect my voice to make it more interesting to you, because it's really good. Before Christianity emerged, there were several hospital-like centers in Buddhist regions. The ancient Greeks practiced a very simple form of medicine, and Greek temples included places where the sick could sleep or receive some help. The Romans are believed to have established some military hospitals. However, it was the Christians of the Roman Empire who began to change society's attitude to the sick, disabled, and dying by their radically different outlook. That would be their radically different ethic. The Greco-Roman world in which Christianity appeared was often cruel and inhumane. The weak and the sick were despised. Abortion, infanticide, and poisoning were widely practiced. The doctor was often a sorcerer as well as being a healer, and the power to heal equally conferred the power to kill. Among the pagans of the classical world, only the Hippocratic band of physicians had a different attitude to their fellow human beings. They swore oaths to heal and not to harm, and to carry out their duty of care to the sick. So there's a small group, the Hippocratic band, 
that actually had a different view than the vast morass of Western civilization at that time. However, the historian goes on, it wasn't until Constantine granted the first edict of toleration in AD 311 that Christians were able to give public expression to their ethical convictions and undertake social reform. From the fourth century to the present, Christians have been especially prominent in the planning, siting, and building of hospitals, as well as fundraising for them. Cities with significant Christian populations had already begun to change prevailing attitudes and were already beginning to build hospices, guest houses for the sick and chronically disabled. Stories of Christian caring had enormous impact even before Constantine's decree of toleration. Clement, a Christian leader in Rome at the end of the first century of the Christian era, records how the Christian community was already doing much to relieve the plight of poor widows. In the second century, when plague hit the city of Carthage, remember I had mentioned that earlier, pagan households threw sufferers into the streets. The entire Christian community, personally led by their bishop, responded. They were seen on the streets offering comfort and taking them into their own homes to be cared for, not doing the nonsense that we see the churchmen in our day doing, following state edicts, telling them not to meet, telling them now to wear masks and say six feet apart or only allow your people to come once a month, depending on what letter their last name starts with. None of that nonsense, not taking money from the state when they did shut down. Oh, I'll shut down so I can get money. Evil, totally contrary to the history of Christianity, have these so-called churchmen in our day behaved. So these people went out and actually took these people in. They were seen on the streets offering comfort and taking them into their own homes to be cared for. A few decades after Constantine, Julian, who came to power in AD 355, was the last Roman emperor to try to reinstitute paganism. In his apology, Julian said that if the old religion wanted to succeed, it would need to care for people even better than the way Christians cared for people. They were noted. Their love, their care, their compassion, their service was noted by pagan men. As political freedom increased, so did Christian activity. The poor were fed and given free burial. Orphans and widows were protected and provided for. Elderly men and women, prisoners, sick slaves, and other outcasts, especially the leprous, were cared for. These acts of generosity and compassion impressed many Roman writers and philosophers. In AD 369, the historian goes on and says, St. Basil of Caesarea, he was the bishop there, founded a 300-bed hospital. Remember I mentioned that? By the way, Basil, I would like to note also, at one point took the men, some of the men from his congregation and went to the infanticide wall where Romans would expose their children and leave them there to just die of exposure. We live in a matriarchal society now where the woman decides if the sons and daughters live or whether they die by abortion. Back then it was a patriarchal society. When the child was born, the father would look at the child. If he didn't want the child, the child went to the infanticide wall. Basil and men from his church during the night went to the infanticide wall and tore it down 
smashed it to the ground. That's what he did. This is the guy here offering all this help, doing all these things, founding the first true hospital, 300-bed facility, not just some little cot off in a back room. This was the first large-scale hospital for the seriously ill and disabled. It cared for victims of the plague. There were hospices for the poor and aged isolation units for the aged, wards for travelers who were sick, and a leprosy house. It was the first of many built by the Christian church. In the so-called Dark Ages, 476 to 1000, rulers influenced by Christian principles encouraged building of hospitals. Charlemagne, for example, who lived from 742 to 814, decreed that every cathedral should have a school, monastery, and hospital attached. Every one. A school, monastery, and hospital attached to every church. They had an all-encompassing view of Christianity impacting the whole culture, every aspect of it, unlike the Christianity of our day. Members of the Benedictine order dedicated themselves to the service of the seriously ill to help them as would Christ, quote-unquote. Monastic hospitals were founded on this principle. The religious revival sparked in England by the preaching of John Wesley and George Whitfield was part of an enormous unleashing of Christian energy throughout Enlightenment Western Europe. It reminded Christians to remember the poor and needy in their midst. They came to understand afresh that bodies needed tending as much as souls. That bodies needed tending as much as souls. A new age of hospitals began with new institutions built by devout Christians for the sick poor, supported mainly by voluntary contributions. The influence of this was felt overseas as well as in England. Health care by Christians in continental Europe received a new impetus. The first hospitals in the new world were founded by Christian pioneers. Christians were at the forefront of the dispensary movement, the prototype of general practice, providing medical care for the urban poor in the congested areas of the large cities. And that's the end of the summary, that part that I wanted to read from this historian regarding Christians and their involvement in medical matters. Medical care matters. As Charles Rosenberg shows in his volume, The Care of Strangers, The Rise of America's Hospital Systems, the title of his book, the Care of Strangers, the Rise of America's Hospital System. He says the modern hospital owes its origins to Judeo-Christian compassion. Evidence of the vast expansion of faith-based hospitals is seen in the legacy of their names, St. Vincent, St. Luke's, Mount Sinai, Presbyterian Mercy, and Beth Israel. These were all charitable hospitals. These were all uh, almost all Christian hospitals here in America. I remember when I was young, Almost every hospital was St. John, St. Luke's, you name it, whatever, because Christians had established this ministry for years, and now the state has invaded it all through statutory law and has wrested it from the Christians and taken it over, and they do not have this Christian ethic. They do not have this Christian worldview. And so what we've done from, what we've gone from is medical care being viewed as a ministry to being a function of the state. We've gone from doctors and healthcare workers looking at their patients as individuals who need care to mere human resources whose care, quote unquote, is dictated by the state. It's no longer viewed as a ministry. 
See it as a job. It's viewed as a money-making matter completely. Those in white coats have become the tyrants in our day. And the politicians have found them to be very useful for their own political ends. Now, that's the part about the white coats. Remember, my sermon is white coats and purse strings. Let me get to the purse strings part here. Those in white coats have become the tyrants, these healthcare professionals, these heroes, these officials. They are the tyrants who think they can rule us. And the politicians, whether Democrat or Republican, every Democrat and almost every Republican have found these little white-coated tyrants to be very useful for their own statist ends. Shutting down people's means of living, forbidding them to work. Closing down churches, of course, the death camps and bars remain open. Everyone walking around like mindless imbeciles with their mask on when everyone with a brain knows wearing them is utter nonsense (laughs) to stopping the virus. Remember Fauci early on? Yeah, if you want to wear a mask, but it doesn't really do anything. Oh, and then the tyrants realized, oh, this is a great way to condition people for tyranny, (laughs) to accept your, make them fearful, foment hysteria, tell them, put this little mask on and look at the dopes all out there complying. Oh, and some of them try to say, oh, yeah, because I'm in a private business and they have it on the door. They have it on the door because they'll get in trouble from the state if they don't have it on the door. You're making it worse for them. You're aiding and abetting a fiction. Walk in without your mask. What you'll find is 99% of the time, they don't say anything to you. The other 1% of the time, you end up in a great conversation or a great confrontation, one of the two. It's just insane what these people... Now, Fauci... Uh, originally, months later, after saying, eh, masks, don't do anything. Oh, put a mask on, put a mask on. Now, that crazy man is telling people to wear two masks, and dopes are doing it. Get a clue. What are you even thinking? Trillions of dollars have been spent. Elderly are dying alone. I could tell you a million heartbreaking stories. The COVID test is everywhere. Just this week, Biden's thinking about saying that everyone who flies on a domestic flight now not only has to go along with the charade of wearing the dopey mask and standing six feet apart. You stand six feet apart, have your dopey mask on, get on the plane. You all sit next to each other in an aluminum, you know, uh, tube right next. It's just ridiculous. He wants everyone to get a COVID test. That's what he's considering doing. You have to wear the mask if you want any medical or dental care. They tell you you got to get a COVID test if you want any medical care. By the way, that's not true. It's a lie. You do not have to be tested. You have the right to tell them, I will not take that test. Stand your ground. Tell them, no, I will not take that test. Now, listen. Once you allow something to be brought under the purview of the state, it provides political opportunism. And both the Democrats and the Republicans love political opportunism. Once you allow something to be brought under the purview of the state, it provides political opportunism for the base men who are the vast majority of those who make up government in America full of themselves. 
I've always taught my children not to take free money, free money from the government. I teach them not to do so because with the shekels come the shackles. A brief perusal of the history of governments demonstrates that it is always the reason for free money from the state to enslave and to control. With the shekels come the shackles. But the Wisconsin Republican Assembly puts money before freedom. They don't teach society what I teach my children. The Wisconsin Republican Assembly puts money before freedom. They put money before liberty. They put money before principle. They are all in the press and in their emails the last few days saying they stopped the vote for SJR 3, which upholds our state constitution and checks the tyrant, Governor Evers' lawlessness, because they would lose federal money. That's what they said. We'll lose federal money. Voss would rather suck from the federal teat and get $50 million a month from the federal beast, which rewards states that tyrannize their people with all the COVID nonsense, rather than protect Wisconsinites from the evil of Biden and the Democrats and the so-called quote-unquote pandemic, wherein the government has made a molehill into a mountain. They'd rather have the money than to uphold freedom and liberty, to uphold our state constitution. They want the money. This reminds me of a story attributed to Winston Churchill, but which has never been verified. Churchill once asked a prominent woman, quote, would you sleep with a stranger if he paid you a million pounds? Unquote. She pondered that question and then answered, quote, unquote, yes. Churchill then asked her, quote, would you sleep with a stranger for five pounds? She immediately exclaimed, quote, what kind of woman do you think I am? Unquote. Churchill responded, quote, Madam, we have already determined what kind of woman you are. Now we are just haggling over the price. Unquote. This is exactly how Robin Voss and the Republican Assembly are behaving. They are political whores to the federal beast, putting money before principle, putting money before freedom and liberty, putting money before our Constitution. Liberty and freedom has a price tag for them, and it's a cheap one. Just give up your freedom and we'll shower you with millions of dollars, says the federal beast, and our Wisconsin Assembly complies. Benjamin Franklin rightly said of such men, quote, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Those who would give up essential liberty, there's what's essential. You've heard everything else that's essential. This is what's essential. Liberty. To purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. This is what happens, brothers and sisters, when you allow government to invade all areas of your life. They politicize and regulate those areas for their own control, control of you. And they have politicized something as basic as our health care here. And now they use the purse strings to pull your strings. Once you let them do it, this is what you end up with.
as why you must contact your state assemblyman and your state senator. Tell them not to support AB1. Tell them to get SJR3 to the floor for a vote. The Senate did already pass it. Robin Voss and the Assembly has not. Get SJR3 on the floor for a vote. The duty of state government officials is to defend us from the federal beast. That's one of their duties. To defend our constitutions and our liberties, that's a main duty. To defend our constitutions and liberties, not sell us out to the federal beast. State governments were never intended to be mere conduits or implementation centers for federal government regulation, law, and policy as they become in our day. Herbert Schlossberg speaks to this point in his magnum opus, Idols for Destruction. Everyone should read that book, Idols for Destruction by Herbert Schlossberg. He says regarding the lesser magistrates, or in this case, the state magistrates. He said, quote, the framers of the American Constitution were conscious of the excesses to which centralized political systems were prone, and their solution was to devise multiple levels of authority, the existence of states, cities, counties, townships, and independent taxing authorities, which to apologists for the state has been a messy derogation from beneficent centralized power, but they have saved us from some of the assaults on freedom that others have suffered. Yes, they established multiple levels, multiple branches to prevent this type of tyranny. Schlossberg points out, however, that in our day, these quote unquote intermediate institutions, which formerly served to check the central power, have largely atrophied. Yes, they become mere conduits to federal law, policy, and court opinion, rather than defenders of the Constitution and our state Constitution, our laws, and our liberties here in Wisconsin. Schlossberg then concludes, listen to this now, quote, after three quarters of a century, the new nationalism has borne bitter fruit. People who have despised the right of localities to govern themselves have delivered them into the hands of federal masters. Local politicians have acquiesced in the mugging of the provinces, talking about the states, because in return for giving up political authority, they have received monetary benefits, unquote. In other words, with the shekels come the shackles. They have whored us out to the federal beast. They've whored themselves out to the federal beast, and it's wicked. And you need to take your Republican assemblyman and senator to task and teach him some sense and not go along with this evil while they sit there and throw all their emails and words at you, which are just baloney nonsense. The, it, listen, this whole AB1 thing, $100 million being spent to do what? Legitimize the whole COVID nonsense to legitimize this molehill being made into a mountain to really, so the legislature could become the tyrant rather than Tony Evers be the tyrant. Voss wants to replace Evers as the tyrant. The federal master has bought the state magistrates off. So they more readily do its bidding rather than the people's 
rather than what's right in the sight of Christ. The lesser authorities become mere implementation centers of federal policy, and that's what they are now, little provinces for the federal beast. The truth is Voss wants to replace Evers and become the new tyrant on the block. He will not allow a vote on SJR 3 until AB 1 makes it through the Senate. The question is, will the Senate and Assembly Republicans give Voss what he wants? AB 1 spends $100 million on the fiction of COVID-19, but more than that, it provides the state to further strengthen itself over our lives and control us further. Actually, we want to make it statutory law. You get one measly person to go in and visit your loved one in a nursing home. One measly person. It's evil. It's ridiculous. This past Tuesday, the Senate voted for SJR 3, which would end Governor Evers' masking and emergency declaration nonsense, but Robin Voss refused to allow a vote on it by the Republican Assembly in order to see Evers' evil ended. He doesn't want to see it ended. He wants to politicize and regulate it. He's wicked, and he needs to be called out on it. Both the Senate and the Assembly are needed to stop Evers' lawlessness. SJR stands for State Joint Resolution. SJR. Both the Assembly and the Senate have had the authority since the very beginning, way last March, to stop Evers. They're still lying that they didn't. It actually lays it out in SJR 3 that they did. Our Supreme Court told them that they did in the opinion they issued over this matter. And they still want to lie about it and say they couldn't do it. But now suddenly they're going to do it. Oh, but they're not because we got to get all this federal money. Voss would rather suck from the federal teat and get $50 million a month from the federal government, which rewards states that tyrannize their people with all the COVID nonsense, rather than protect Wisconsinites from the federal beast's evil. Voss is also not allowed SB 4, 5, and 7 to get a vote in the Assembly, bills which would also stop Evers and protect Wisconsinites against health officials who want to tyrannize them. Contact your assemblyman. Contact your senator. Tell your assemblyman to get SJR 3 to the floor for a vote. Tell your state senator to oppose AB 1 and any amendment by the Senate. It's wrong. I've had legislators tell me we have to give him, talking about Evers, all kinds of concessions because he won't sign the bill otherwise. And I'm sitting there saying, why do we need him to sign a bill? Why aren't you just checking his evil? Why aren't you just stopping the evil? Oh, I know, because the Republican history is one of not stopping the evil, but politicizing and regulating the evil. They've done it to the preborn. They've done it with every evil that's come down the pike, and they're going to do it with this evil too. All while they hoodwink stupid people who can't read past their emails and see that they're frauds. They're little words of compassion and nonsense. Grow up. Learn something about a fight and act like men and defend your homes and demand that they check Evers Evil with SJR 3, forget about the federal money, who cares, and put AB 1 into the trash bin where it belongs. Let me simply close by saying this. 
When the superior civil authority does evil, the lesser authorities are not to politicize and regulate the evil. Rather, their duty is to stop the evil. They are not to be manipulated by the purse strings. They should abhor the purse strings. The Christian doesn't put money before what is right. That's right. And some of these men in the Republican Assembly claim Christ. A Christian doesn't put money before principle. He doesn't put money before what is right. Democrats and wicked men like Governor Evers do that. That's why we don't vote for them, swine. Status dogs like Robin Voss and the Republicans' assembly, however, yeah, they want to play the whore. They want to put money before principle. They want to put money before doing right. But Christian men don't do that. We don't put money over principle. We don't give up principle so we can find ourselves in the weeds of the practices, of the weeds of the details. Once you let them politicize an issue, it's never ending. What is the primary thing is no longer the primary thing. Everything gets lost in the detail, and we're on that road with this. That's why you have to tell them, stop it all. Vote for SJR3. Just stop the evil. James Madison addressed this, and I want to close with this. He said this, quote, because it is proper to take alarm at the first experiment on our liberties. Because it is proper to take alarm at the first experiment on our liberties. Think back. Almost a year ago, two weeks, they said, oh, it'll all be over. Anyone with the brain knew that was garbage. I've told everybody since then, these tyrants must be defeated. They cannot be ignored. They will not go away. They must be defeated. Because it is proper to take alarm at the first experiment on our liberties. That's right. Madison goes on and says, we hold this prudent jealousy to be the first duty of citizens. And one of the noblest characteristics of the late revolution, talking about the American revolution. We hold this prudent jealousy to be the first duty of citizens and one of the noblest characteristics of the state revolution, the free men of the late revolution, the free men of America did not wait till usurped power had strengthened itself by exercise, and then listen to this, and entangled the question in precedence. They saw all the consequences in the principle. And they avoided the consequences by denying the principle. We revere this lesson too much soon to forget it. That's what the Republicans are doing to you right now. With all their nice little emails, they're trying to get you to believe, their little Facebook posts, they're trying to get you to believe that you should join them in the weeds. The truth of the matter is, you should deny the principle. Otherwise, you end up with the consequences of a statist hell growing in power over your lives and your children and your grandchildren's lives. Get a clue. Be men. Stand up for once and do what's right and needed. Show some aggression. Show some passion over this matter. These men are evil. They're not your friends. Have you figured that out yet? The Republicans are not your friends. You better engage, get engaged. These men need to be unseated. Good men need to replace them who think right. This is evil what they are doing. 
I hope you re-listen to what I had to say here. Been a little under the weather, didn't get to prepare as properly as I wanted to. May Christ be praised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we had in your word to understand your ethic, to understand your thinking, your ways, and how the early church, the history of the early church and Christian men all through history, how they took your word seriously regarding the sick, regarding the stranger, helping others, regarding medical care matters, oh God. And Lord, I just ask and pray that you would use what I set forth here for good. Lord, the failure in my delivery today, awful as it seemed in my mind to be, Lord, I I pray still that you would use what was set forth here for good in the hearts and minds of the hearers, that you would light a fire in their heart for righteousness of love for you and love for their neighbor to hate evil, O God, to see tyranny resisted and crushed underfoot. Lord, I ask and pray that you, O Lord, would do great things through your people, that they would not just be status and throw everything off in the state and say, that's fine, but that they would see what Christian men before them did, that they built things, that they influenced the culture and society and governments of men because of their service to you and to neighbor. Lord, I ask and pray that you would be glorified through our lives and in our homes. And I ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So God bless you. And um, hopefully next week there won't be a snowstorm and we'll be back at our church and having great time of fellowship. And and, um, may the Lord be praised. God bless you.